One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, Caroline Foran. If you're listening to this episode the week that it's been published, I think I can safely wish you a happy and relaxing Christmas. And just remember, if you feel overwhelmed or anxious at any point throughout the next week or two, your breath is always your anchor. So take five, do some deep belly breathing and remind yourself that you've got this. For Christmas week, I thought who better to chat with than the man who needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway blind boy so he asked me actually to make sure and reference his podcast which I thought was hilarious because if you're not if you're Irish and you're not already aware of his podcast you must be living under one enormous rock the man was like the founding father of podcasts in Ireland Uh, so it's called the blind boy podcast for those maybe one or two of you who aren't aware and it's incredibly successful and such a wonderful resource for mental health and well-being as well as an insight into what is a very creative and inspiring and refreshing mind his latest book is Boulevard Wren, which I've been reading and really enjoying. Um, and as the year drew to a close, he was kind enough to give me an hour of his time to talk about anxiety on my little podcast. Honestly, I've had such incredible chats throughout the whole year, but nobody articulates it as well as Blind Boy. I was nodding my head at every sentence to such an extent I actually left the studio with a pain in my neck. So I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it, this particular episode. And if you're in the Christmas present giving mood this particular week and you want to you want to subscribe as a patron to the Owning a Tip Jar, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Caroline Foran. And obviously, you know, I want to thank everyone so much who's signed up so far and with your support for what I'm creating here, hopefully I'll be able to continue doing this well into 2020. So have a lovely Christmas. Thank you so much for everything. Thanks for tuning in. And for now, here's Blind Boy. Blind Boy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And my mild stalking eventually paid off, and here we are. What's the crack? How are you getting on? (laughs) I'm good. First of all, congratulations on the new book. I have been reading it every night and having really absolutely bananas dreams. Last night, I was in the middle of the, the story about the dog decapitated dog's head (laughs) and I did not sleep well (laughs) 
wasn't great for the anxiety, but it, it's absolutely fantastic. And it's such a good commentary on, you know, so many social issues. So congratulations on that. And Thank con- you very much. Congrats on the, the BBC show. I haven't had, got to see that yet, but that's coming out soon, is it? Uh, the BBC show... It came out on Friday and there's one episode to come out this week. It's an episode about anxiety. And also I want to thank you for the enormous role that you've you've had in, in normalising mental health difficulties and anxiety in particular across Ireland and in the UK and in America where I know you've been doing lots of work recently. But you've single-handedly played such a massive part in normalising and make, making people feel comfortable to talk about anxiety. So thank you for that. Thanks very much. I actually think our experiences of anxiety were very similar. I know you were speaking on the Late Late Show probably a couple of years ago now about having had such bad anxiety in your teens. Um, yeah. If you had a panic attack in a shopping centre, for example, you weren't able to go back to that shopping centre and I was the exact yeah. same. What was that like for you and does that feel like a distant memory now? Um, thankfully, it kind of, it does feel like a distant memory. Um, what I had basically was, uh, see, the scariest, this, this, this would have been the mid-2000s and... Anxiety wasn't really spoken about. You'd hear the word panic attack every so often. Mm. So the the most frightening thing for me when I started to get anxiety attacks, it's it's not knowing what they were. Yeah, that was by far the worst part. Is all of a sudden I was overcome with intense dread for no reason, and then you're that kind of is followed by a kind of a, a very low trauma. Mm-hmm. Over what what has happened, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but but the problem was I didn't know what it was, and because mental health discourse, and because I was only I, I was only nineteen, and because mental health discourse was so poor in Ireland, I I, I thought I was getting schizophrenia. Wow. I thought I was full on. This was it. Now, uh, if I tell someone about this now, I'm going to go to uh, what we would have referred to as a mental institution at the yeah. time. And I would have thought I'm going to be wrapped up in a white jacket and I'm going to be receive extreme medication that's going to turn me into a zombie because my language around mental health at the time was so poor, because discourse was so poor. Mm-hmm. So that was, I, I, I had to do that for about six months. So you were and in it then, kind of by yourself for six months? Yeah. And wow. the thing is, is the, the fear of, firstly, the thing with an anxiety attack when you don't have any... I didn't have any language for it. I'd had no mm. words. So uh, w- when I first, I mean, the, the first part to call after about two months of it was to go to the doctor because you're going, th- something new is happening to me and it's very bad. So I re- w- would go to my doctor and say, I'm feeling happy is how I, because uh, I, was, I was 18, 19. I'm not, actually, no, I think I might've been 17 then. I used to say I was feeling happy. That, and I, he was like, what do you mean? I said, I feel like I want to, hop around the place all the time but I, I, I said it was it's like the ground underneath me is really hot and I want to jump up and down all the time mm, and right. I had no language and he he was kind of good he he understood he was like well your leaving cert is coming up and I'm like yeah but I'm not that worried about the leaving cert and he tried to explain the unconscious mind to me he says I know you think you're not worried about the leaving cert, but you really, really are deep inside and it could be finding its way out this way. But he still didn't tell me it was a, an anxiety attack. Mm. And then what I did is I ended up seeing a psycho... I went to my parents and said, look, I don't know what this is. How did they react? And frightened mm. to, to, to the point that it... They, see, I had a cousin who had schizophrenia, you see. And so they didn't react with compassion they reacted in a kind of initially with resistance and fear. Yeah. So that because it would have been threatening information where it's like, oh, fuck, is, is, is he going to 
turn out now with, like his cousin with schizophrenia and be in a mental institution mm. because of that they kind of denied it and was like ah you're going to be grand you're only 17 I don't mind that that happens all the time I'll go for a run around the block that'll get rid of it which wasn't very nice because I didn't have the the, the, the verbal language and the emotional maturity to understand what was going on mm. and then when I went I asked for a psychiatrist it took six months to get on the waiting list and I saw him once and he then said to me this is called an anxiety attack and it's like a fire alarm goes off in a building but there's no fire. Mm-hmm. And hearing that, 50% of it went away. Wow. Just feeling... Now, it was still yeah, terrible. I, I went from a, a, a 10 to an 8, mm-hmm. we'll say in terms of the extremity. But just hearing someone say, there's a name for what you have, it's quite common. And then I used to find great solace then in reading about what an anxiety attack is, seeing the checklist and simply reading sweaty palms, shallow breath, uh, feelings that you're going to die imminently. Mm -hmm. And when you read that on a page and and see that like, all right, this intensely fearful thing, which I believe is unique to me, when you see other people getting the same shit, then all of a sudden it's it's still terrifying and terrible, but you, you feel... I don't know, is community the word? Yeah. You feel less, less unique. Yeah. You feel less, un- less unique and, and less like the world is pointing at me with this terribleness. It's like, all right, well, everyone else has this shit too. It doesn't make it go away, but maybe I'm, I am normal. Do you and know did what I mean? You, did you get any clarity then on maybe the reasons why you were experiencing such bad anxiety at that time? Or did you ever? No, no okay. Did you no, feel the no. need to know why? I, I Again, I, I didn't have... I simply didn't have the language or the understanding. I didn't understand the the unconscious mind. I just knew here's this thing that's happening, and I want to I want to make it happen less. So, thankfully, now I'm not anti medication. Okay, yeah. my opinion is every single person is unique, and the 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 solution approach to each person is 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 as unique to them as their relationship with their anxiety. So I'm not. I don't want to be shaming anyone for taking anxiety medication. I just feel for me at the time, I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. I don't think it would have worked for me. Um. So my the psychiatrist I went to, I said to him, "Look, is is there because I'd been grown up as well? I I I was an asthmatic as a child, and so I often I had a relationship with doctors. Going to the doctor was something." that happened a lot with me as a child because I'd get frequent chest infections. So I'd go to the doctor throughout my childhood with a complaint, then I'd receive a pill and the pill would fix me, whether that be steroids from my chest or an inhaler. So I'd gotten into this system of thinking whereby I went to the psychiatrist and expected to leave with pills that would fix me. Mm. And he he kind of didn't. He said, pills exist. There's a pill called Xanax but I'd like to see you try something different instead. And he recommended a book for me, which was called uh, The Calm Technique by, I think, Paul Wilson was his name, Paul something. It was a tiny, tiny book that had fit in the palm of your hand. And all it was really was, it's, it's called The Calm Technique, but what it was was mindfulness meditation. And a huge... Now, this is before... I, this is like going back to the very roots mm. of my anxiety, but a massive, massive thing for me was... So you have your panic attack, 
but then after the panic attack is finished you're still at a very heightened state of anxiety which is unpleasant yeah it's the, and you the don't fear ha- that it has happened to you and why yeah. has it happened and oh the, and it, the power is of it going to happen again yeah yeah so another thing that because I didn't have self-awareness is when you're like that your stress hormones are very high all the time and one thing that I didn't notice was that my, my breathing was very very shallow mm. non-stop and with the cam technique I learned a simple a way of breathing which were basically I would just put my hand on my stomach I'd close my mouth and I'd breathe in through my nose and this would cause my stomach to inflate and all this was doing it was it was asking me to use the entirety of my diaphragm to take in oxygen and I started doing that non-stop to the point that I would become aware of my breathing on a daily basis and that got rid of the excessive hum of anxiety that was hanging around my life Mm -hmm. and then I learned meditation but again all this was there were little bandages yeah there were little bandages and little band-aids and little things that they just stopped the symptoms of the anxiety but didn't address any of the underlying causes which I was unaware of you know and did you get to that point eventually yeah so one of the things at the time so I, I I eventually ended up inside an in art college, you know. And one of the beautiful things about college... Now, sadly, this is disappearing in 2019. But when I was in college in the mid-2000s, if you wanted counselling in college, you had free access to it. Because the thing was, I didn't grow up with a hell of a amount of money. Like, I had a medical card for access to my, uh, my health stuff. And counselling wasn't covered by medical card. I, my psychiatrist wasn't covered by medical card. My, my parents had to fork out 200 quid for that one visit, you know, and they didn't necessarily have that. But when I went to college, and I was in college on a means-tested grant, I just remember student services on the first day saying, if, if, if anyone here has issues with depression or anxiety, you have access to a counsellor. And that to me was like, wow, you mean I can go to a counsellor and talk about my anxiety once a week and not pay for it? So I immediately <laughs> did it. And I did counselling in college for nearly three years. And, and that's when you discovered CBT? Yes. So because I'm, I'm a naturally kind of inquisitive person, like the feeling of going to a counsellor is fucking amazing. Yeah. Because you sit down with this person and they have a special way of listening to you and you walk away feeling like you've just had a shower inside your head. <laughs> you know? Mm. It's such a beautiful feeling. And I would leave... I'd enter the psychiatrist or, or the counsellor's office with my anxiety at a 10 and then every time I'd leave with my anxiety down at a 2 and not only a 2 but a real feeling of hope a mm. feeling of my life doesn't have to be like this and because I'm quite inquisitive and I love learning and I love knowledge I'd ask the counsellor questions I'd say look what what the fuck are you doing to me that is making me feel this way. And then he would say, well, this is called cognitive behavioural therapy. And this, when I talk about your childhood, that's because of the work of Sigmund Freud. So I'd go learning and learning and learning about psychotherapy. So by the time then I finished art college, I wanted to be a psychotherapist. I was like, because I, I'd been... I don't like to use the word cured because I don't think cured is the right word to use. Yeah, you were I'd, managing it very well completely managed it to the point that anxiety was no longer a part of my life yeah and 
So through, it was really when I went on to train to be a psychotherapist, that's when the true transformation in myself happened and that's when I truly understood why I would become an anxious person. Mm. And the most intense thing for me is that in order to train to be a psychotherapist, you have to do an introductory course. And the one that I did was, because I would have been about 21 or 2, and... Firstly, here's a huge reasoning behind my anxiety and why I ended up with anxiety, okay? I mentioned earlier that I I had asthma as a child. Yeah. So because I was born with asthma, and it was bad asthma when I was a toddler, and my parents were older, and as well, they're very, they they were old school Irish, so it meant that if a a priest said something or a doctor said something, it was the absolute truth. If Mm -hmm. a guard said something, it was the truth. If, If a teacher said something it was the truth so they believed in these old school Irish structures of authority and power so the doctor my dad was a bit of a panicker as well and the, my, my, my dad would have said to the doctor when I was one or two is this asthma fatal and a doctor will never lie and the doctor would have said something like well you know people have died from asthma he, you know he should avoid overexerting himself he should avoid uh, maybe playing sports or running as fast as the other children. So my dad kind of went, right, okay, well, if this young fella plays soccer or runs or does these things, then he's going to die. Wow. So when I was three or four and I want to go out onto the pitch and play soccer with my friends or I want to play tag or do the normal things that the other children are doing, my dad, who was acting from a position of, of compassion and trying to help me, he'd say to me you're going to die if 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 you run too fast you're going to get an asthma attack and you're going to die and children ch- children don't question the words of adults yeah children don't have the capacity to think critically so i i would literally at 3 4 years of age go all right okay so running means death playing soccer means death you get to eight or nine and all of a sudden your friends are having sleepovers in someone's house. That to me meant, what What if you get an asthma attack? You'll die. Yeah. You don't have your nebulizer. You can't go to your friend's house where everyone is going because if you get an asthma attack, you're going to die. So the narrative of uh, death was a huge part of my childhood as a result of my dad's panic. And I suppose you wouldn't have had, you hadn't developed to the point where you were able to rationalise because that part of your brain doesn't come in until maybe 11 no, or 12. So you've got the fear, you've got the like long-term memories, the, the association, the fear association, and you can't do anything about it. So that would have set in stone yeah. you know, your a whole adult life of anxiety then had you not addressed it. Exactly. And and the thing was is that what, what, it, what it was was I didn't associate running with death. I didn't associate... Uh, playing soccer with death or didn't associate sleepovers with death what it began to grow into is every time my peers were doing something that was considered normal for their age group playing soccer sleepovers things like that I was had to exclude myself from it because it meant death but what it went into my unconscious mind unconscious mind as was if you participate in anything normal you're going to die Mm. So when it came to 19, 1920 is a tough fucking age. Yeah. Because the worst. yes, you're you're faced all of a sudden with the the challenge of of adulthood and autonomy and standing on your own two feet. 
So I, I hadn't really been allowed... When, when you're not allowed to go to a sleepover when you're ace, when you're not allowed to develop and do these things that are... Your first sleepover is scary. When you're a kid, the thought of, of leaving your parents' house and staying over in a stranger's house is frightening because you're leaving the nest. I didn't get to do it. So when I got to 1920 and now all of a sudden... I'm in college with people who are living on their own, who are washing their own clothes, who are making their own dinners, doing all these responsible adult things and kind of fucking up and, you know, learning how to do it and maybe spending three days with unwashed clothes because their ma's not around anymore, but having to learn these things. Mm. For me, it that, that brought on intense panic attacks. The idea of adulthood brought on deep fear with the consequences of death yeah. and my my anxiety attacks when I was getting anxiety attacks I never knew what the trigger was but in the moment I was dying that's what I thought was happening I truly believed whatever the fuck this is I'm dying and I'm going to die and, and I'm definitely going to be dead that was the internal thoughts in my head, you know? Yeah. I was the same around uh, the similar age, maybe in fifth year of school when everyone was kind of finding their independence and wanting to go as far away from home as possible. I, For me, it was always my stomach. It always manifested there and I never wanted to be away from my home in case I got sick. And I always thought, I'm yeah. going to get sick if I'm away from home. So that brought me into not just anxiety about what if I'm sick, but then anxiety about the shame around it and talking to people about it and my age group at the time would have been like what's wrong with you like how are you still sick so talk to me about and, the and shame what do you mean sick exactly do, do you just mean just upset uh, stomach like I just every time I would leave the house I, I, I think I've always had a bit of a sensitive stomach and yeah. I get sick quite easily and then but I, I still have a very irrational fear of throwing up uh, I'm, ter- oh, yeah, I'm yeah, terrified yeah. of it but I would just be afraid of if, if I don't if I, if I was ever upset or worried I wouldn't feel well and that's how it was for me. And for me, it wasn't so much a fear of dying, but how am I going to cope if I'm sick and I'm away from home or from on holidays or from away from my comfort zone? And then I started to get sick because I was away from my comfort zone or because I was, you know, without my mom and that kind of thing. And then what started as anxiety for that became anxiety about what people would think about me because I wasn't able to go and hang out with my friends or, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't, I, I didn't want to do all the normal things that people were doing because I was, and I was embarrassed about that. I was so afraid of what kind of loser am I? Mm-hmm. you know to feel that way so then you've got the added layer of the anxiety around what people think of you so did you experience that shame absolutely so like there was many kind of prongs to my anxiety attacks so wh- when i was getting an anxiety attack like like i said in the moment i believed i was dying but then when i started to get them in public the concept of shame came into it a lot the concept of i i was utterly terrified like vomiting was was a big one for me too and mm. and that's quite a common one for a lot of people i was terrified of what if i'm in a shopping center and then i puke and every single person in the shopping center has to stare at me yeah and i become an object of shame and pity and ridicule and for me i believe what it was is it, it, it was reflecting the fact that I also had deeply low self-esteem mm. and that the low self-esteem came from consistently being excluded from what's considered normal. Yeah. My brain would have internalised, you're not going to a sleepover, you're not playing soccer as because you're not the same as them, you're somehow lesser, you're fragile, you're weak, you can't do these normal things and over time that hacks away at your self-esteem. It feels bad to be in school on a Monday morning and hear the lads talking about the crack that they had at the sleepover. 
it feels bad to not be part of that conversation because you couldn't go because you were weak and yeah. enough of that over time it led to me as a, as a a young adult as someone who deeply didn't believe that they were a normal person mm-hmm. I believed myself to be lesser than normal and so I had the fear of what if I become a public spectacle and the shitty thing about anxiety and it's it's codependency with depression mm-hmm. so because obviously then I begin to withdraw at nineteen twenty, I withdraw from anywhere where I receive an anxiety attack. So I'm not going to shopping centres. I'm not going out to the pub when my friends are in the pub. I'm staying at home in my room in my little safe space where I'm managing my environment meticulously because it's the only place where I still was getting panic attacks. But I believe that, look, if I get a panic attack in my room, at least it's just me on my own. Yeah. And what happens is the shame of that the shame of what a fucking loser I can't go to the pub what a fucking loser I can't even be in lectures anymore where everyone else is in a lecture the shame of that and con- the continual bashing of myself that my mind was doing leads to depression yeah. so then I get severe severe depression to the point of being suicidal because I didn't see a point of being alive if I, I was so worthless as such I felt the same I, I felt that I I got to the point where my anxiety was so bad. I didn't leave my house for, for several months um, mm-hmm. and I was afraid. I had, especially shopping centres. I remember being in Dundrum and having this horrible panic attack but nobody would have been able to see it. And I remember a friend of mine who I wasn't expecting to see walk by and stopped to say hi. And I was so unnerved by this happening that I just, in my head, I was like, if I don't get out of this situation right now, I'm going to die. And yeah. I just hid myself away from it so much. And then eventually I was like, if this is all my life is going to be, I don't want to be here. But I knew that for me, I was like, I so desperately don't want to feel this way. And for me, what made a big change was, apart from just talking to doctors or or specialists, was when I eventually talked to my peers. Do you remember a a specific time where not just a therapist or a counsellor or your parents, do you remember talking to one of your peers and saying, listen, this is how I'm actually feeling? And obviously the fear that would go along with that, but then the reassurance that maybe you're not the only one. Like, did anyone ever reflect back to you that they felt that too? No, unfortunately. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When, when I would say it to my peers, it was, it, it, it was, see the thing is, and I think this might be the difference between a male group and a female group maybe. Yeah. When I would say, like after I was doing a bit of counselling, and I became comfortable with saying I get anxiety attacks. When I said it to people my own age, and my group would have been men, it would make them deeply uncomfortable. And they would write me off as eccentric or mad. And they'd go, Asher, he's the mad artist of the group anyway, you know. All sorts go on in his head. Because, you know, at, at, when I was 19, I mean, as you said, you just read my book. Do you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I have... Some I'm dark stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm comfortable being in in a rational territory. Territory. Yeah. I, I'm I'm an artist. I like to explore darkness and to say creative things. And people who aren't artists themselves can perceive that as eccentricity, where it's really creativity. So when it it, it was it it was very challenging to my friends. They mm. they would want to move away from the conversation as quickly as possible and write it off as me just being eccentric. Whereas probably I now realize what it was is. They were probably going through the same shit, and me exposing vulnerability like that might have been a little bit too close to the bone for them. Yeah, you know. So what lads do in particular is they they use the crack, they use fun and crack and slagging to get away from that territory of real emotions. And do you think that's why you ended up doing what you do and exploring all these issues through comedy and art and your writing? Is that are men oh, yeah. are men in particular more receptive to these discussions when they're presented at them in through an artistic form? Yeah. Um, lads, lads use the crack, um, mm. but the crack. I, I tell you what, the function of the crack, right? And it's something when when I was training to be a psychotherapist, we one of the earliest things you do is you learn about your relationship with tissues in the counselling room. Okay, not not only in the counselling room, in, in in a public setting. So, when someone is crying, an adult is crying in front of you, all people have a natural reaction to reach for tissues to give a tissue to that person. But what we learned in psychotherapy training was when you're offering someone tissues, it's not actually an act of compassion to help their tears. What it is, is their raw outpouring of emotion makes us so deeply uncomfortable that we can't sit with that emotion and we must distract ourselves by reaching for tissues to give ourselves something to do so we don't have to sit with their pain. And giving someone tissues is actually, you're, what you're saying is, please fucking stop crying yeah. because your tears are asking me to go to places in myself that I'm not ready to go to. Mm. So with psychotherapy, you have to learn to truly sit and live and exist in another person's pain and to not allow that to affect your boundaries. So lads use crack the way we use tissues. So when a group of lads are together and someone, a man in the group expresses what's perceived to be a vulnerability or a weakness or speaking about depression or anxiety, someone will hit him in the shoulder, make a homophobic joke or slag his mother and everyone laughs and it acts as a little bandage but that's the tissue within male culture. Mm. What the crack is, it's for the love of fucking God, if you start crying or if you start talking about your vulnerability then I might have to look at mine and I'm sure as fuck not sitting with that because I'm not ready for this buddy so I'm going to slag your mother and we're going to change the subject very quickly and everyone's going to laugh and it's grand because we're lads and we have the crack and it works 
it's just little bandages or band-aids all the time little band-aids but no underlying issue addressed and do you think that's changing uh, it is yeah it's 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 certainly getting better i um how did, how did you feel when you eventually put it out there not just to your your peers but you know you came out on this public platform and people obviously I, I've experienced the same where people are like thank you for making me feel like I'm less alone did that get you to a point where it felt you had normalised it well by the time I started doing it like I, I at that point I'd the thing is I trained to be a counsellor for three years but then my music career took off so I left it so I never fully qualified Yeah, but I had all this knowledge of psychology and all this personal development and I'd learned that my internal emotional world is just not a frightening place for me anymore I, I've no issue sitting with feelings of uh, when you're going through the transformative process of counselling or training to be a counsellor you have to really really sit and meditate on the most frightening parts of yourself and the most frightening parts of self are always things to do with self-esteem it's the part of yourself that it manifests as things like envy and jealousy the part of yourself no one likes to admit to themselves right that they perceive another person as being better so what we do instead is we get jealous or we begrudge Mm -hmm. but you don't sit with the part that goes I, I, I perceive that person to be above me for whatever reason. So I would have to spend a long time sitting with that part of myself, not allowing myself give in to, ah, that lad over there is only a prick. Look look at him. Uh, he's 22 and he's got a proper job and a car. What a fucking prick. Mm-hmm. Look at him. He thinks he's great. That's what I would say. But through psychotherapy, what I started saying to myself was, look at that fellow with his car and his job. His car and his job makes me feel weak and small and lesser. Mm. I'm actually writing uh, my third book at the moment is coming out in May and I actually interestingly I have a chapter on envy and uh, jealousy and I was trying to understand I always had this fear uh, it's probably going a bit off topic that you know someone else's success will take from yours and I was like mm-hmm. well, what, why is that and we're so quick to sort of put it on the other person and the more I teased it apart the more I kind of came to the conclusion that we have um, a zero sum game mentality about the world mm-hmm. and we all have this innate fear of scarcity which is really that we want to kind yeah. of we're afraid that if one person wins we lose um, this is definitely off topic but just I thought that was just really interesting no as well. it's, it's, it's spot on and it's what, what I started to do to conquer it because and, the, and this is true for fucking everybody if you feel yourself there's, there's two sides to it there's jealousy and envy of another person who you perceive to have more and that you, you express that then as they're only a prick they think they're great with no evidence and then you end up having contempt for people who you perceive to be below you. Ah, look at them. They're, they're not in college. They're not where I am. Fucking stupid prick. Uh, both of these things are toxic cycles of defence mechanisms that stop you from confronting your own weakness. And mm-hmm. what, what, So what, what I learned to do with psychotherapy was, in psychology, what I've just described there is known, it's known as an external locus of evaluation. Okay? Mm-hmm. Which means that... If, and society, the thing is, society wants us to be this way because we live in a consumerist society. And consumerism is, how do I describe it? Consumerism is basically when, when you buy something, when you purchase something and you're not purchasing it 
purchasing it because you need it. You're purchasing it because you believe you're, you're buying a better version of yourself. And this is how our society is set up. This is how consumerism needs to exist. So the classic example, uh, let's, let's just take something like a, a popular soap brand. Soap. What does soap do? It gets you fucking clean. That's all soap can do. Is All it can do is get you clean. But if you look at an ad for soap today... It has nothing to do with this will get you clean. It has to do with beautiful people stroking their skin. Yeah. So the so you're not being sold soap anymore. You're being so- said, align yourself with this brand and you can purchase a better version of yourself. And that's branding. That's consumerism. And that is our current society. So we're conditioned from a very young age to be on the outside like that. So what, what an external locus of evaluation is, it's when you're sense of self-worth depends entirely upon your relationship with other people. So if you consistently look at someone else as being better than you, or you look at someone else as being lesser than you, there is no way to truly have a sense of self-esteem because you are basing it on very irrational, arbitrary things that you have no control of. So instead... What I focused on for years and years was moving from an external locus of evaluation to an internal locus, which means that this man here with his car and his job, fair play to him, good for him, this does not, uh, this doesn't define me in any way. If I don't have a car or a job, it doesn't make me any less of a person. All human beings have intrinsic human value, which is the value that you simply have by being born and being alive. And no aspect of our behaviour defines our internal worth. And what the mantra I started to say to myself all the time, and yeah, yeah, what I started to do was I'd say this, I'd catch myself either having contempt in the moment or having jealousy in the moment, and I'd say to myself, I'm better than no one else, and no one else is better than me because I'm a human being, and human beings are just far too complex to be evaluating ourselves off... off external things or little parts of ourselves you know mm. and, do you and remember then I developed self-esteem yeah. that's, the, that's the, co- the core of counselling and psychotherapy I believe is for the person to truly have self-esteem that's what it is and self-esteem isn't confidence it's yeah. separate to confidence people with good self-esteem often are confident but ultimately what it is it's truly believing that you have value no matter what and that other people aren't lesser or more than you and do you remember getting to a moment when you went to study psychotherapy of, of getting to that point of acceptance and never looking back? Yeah, and what it was, it was, it was when I was in the group therapy. So when, when I began group therapy, like I said, a lot of my anxiety was about being an adult. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I think like 21, 22 in this group. And I was very young to be trying to train to be a psychotherapist. In it, uh, To be honest, I was so young even if I'd have qualified, I don't think I'd have gotten a job because training to be a psychotherapist, it's, it's the domain of mature students, people who are in their late 20s, 30s. So I found myself in a group and it was a weekly group that I had to do for a year and it was me and, and the, the youngest person in the class would have been about 32 and the rest of the people would have been in their 40s, 50s and some in their 60s and we're all there wanting to be psychotherapists. But the thing was is that it was group therapy. It wasn't sit down each week and learn about these psychological theories. It was none of that. It was a type of therapy called Gestalt, which is a very... Gestalt psychology and therapy is... It's it's one that asks you to sit with pain. Mm. It 
keeps you well out of your fucking head and well out of intellectualization and you must sit with your own pain and the pain of other people and for weeks and weeks what happens is you have a group moderator you're asked to talk about your week then because the moderator is a professional psychotherapist they know exactly what questions to ask I mean the key with psychotherapy is um you never ask someone a question that has a yes or a no answer. If someone says, uh, you know, how are you getting on last week? Oh, I was grand, I was in work, but uh, one of my colleagues is a fucking, is a prick. And the moderator go, instead of going, why are, why are they a prick? The moderator would go, and what was it like for you to uh, feel that your co-worker is a prick? And through this open questioning, all of a sudden, after a half an hour, you've got someone realising that their co-worker reminds them of their mother. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then they're bawling, crying. And what happens was, I'm here, 21, going, oh, fuck, I'm surrounded by adults. How do I talk to adults? Because I'm not even a real person. And then I'm forced. I, I had to sit in a room and watch a 50-year-old guard bawl, crying, and scream for an hour as they uncovered intense trauma from their childhood that they weren't aware of. And I had to sit and be compassionate and be present for that person. Yeah. And the change and growth that that did for me was absolutely phenomenal. How, how can I be fearful of being an adult and being autonomous when I'm now sitting with the pain and tears of another person and living only in a space where there's nothing but compassion going on so that the growth from that and from that then all of a sudden my rubber bandits career kicked off mm. like that's why my I was someone who was in my bedroom making music making skits but because I didn't have any self-esteem I wasn't like confidently saying to myself fuck it I could have a career fuck it I could be on a stage I wasn't. I was. I was keeping them secret. But then, when I had this personal growth, I had the confidence to go. I have talent. I have creativity. I'm going to put this stuff out there because why not? What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. I've. I've been. I've been present with an adult's tears. How do, How could this be scary? And within a year, I'm performing in front of thousands of people. It just transformative. Every, the entire potentiality of my being as an artist, was realised within a year because I developed self-esteem and the confidence to go, I'm going to try. And how is your relationship with your thoughts these days? Um, very open, very honest, you know. I mean, it's, it's a non-stop, continual process. Mm. I'm, I, can, I, I can happily say, look, I'm, I'm happy all the time. Um, well the reason I'm happy all the time is I, can, I still receive the same... Like, here, here's the thing. It's another thing I, I say to myself, and it comes from cognitive behavioral therapy. I have no control over what happens to me in my life, but I have absolute control over my attitude towards what happens to me. So any stress that enters my life, I have the emotional tools to deal with it in the present moment and to question it and to kind of weigh it up against my own internal sense of value. So I don't... What would what caused what caused me to speaking for myself bad mental health? It's it's when I take irrational positions on uh, everyday challenges. Mm. It's when I entertain it's, instead of you know things happen in my life that are frightening. If I am worried about where my income is coming from in six months, that's frightening, and it's legitimately frightening. But I treat it as frightening. I don't treat it as a doom situation 
anxiety would ask me to say, you don't know where your income is going to be in six months. You're going to be fucked. You're going to be living on the streets. I don't entertain that. What I say is, I genuinely don't know what my income is going to be in six months. I'm going to cope. I'm going to, day to day, I'm going to take it. And I'm not worried about shit that's going to happen in six months because it's outside of my control. And when it happens, I'm going to cope with it. Whatever it is, I know I can cope. And then all of a sudden, because I'm I, I'm telling myself that, I'm now solution focused. Mm. I'm now able to look at six months time and I'm able to deal with it rationally instead of hiding in a closet and going, oh, fuck, no, this is terrifying. I can't do it. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to self-sabotage. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's really interesting as well because, you know, you say that you haven't had bad mental health in a long time, but it's not that. I think people are, they're listening to my podcast or they're, when they found my book first first time around, they were wanting to cure anxiety and so was I. Like, I wanted to never yeah. have anxious thoughts and we're trying to get to a place where we don't feel fear at all or where we, we don't have anxious reactions. But would it be fair to say that you still have those thoughts and anxiety is yeah. still there, but you choose not to opt into it? Absolutely. Come here to me. Look, I started this by saying that uh, I was born an asthmatic. Mm. I'm still an asthmatic, but I don't live the life of someone with asthma. Yeah. Because I, I, I have my inhaler when I need it. I exercise a lot to keep my lungs going. And I do not live the life of someone who has asthma. But if I didn't exercise, if I was smoking 20 fags a day, if I wasn't taking my medicine, I'd be living the life of an asthmatic. So I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm an anxious human being. Yeah, but you're working um, with yourself rather than against yeah, yourself. Yeah, I'm still very um, introverted. I mm-hmm. don't like crowds. I don't like being in huge groups of people. I'm someone who keeps to themselves. I'm very. I'm quite shy. I'm. I'm fairly quiet. Uh, these. I, I. I can't change my personality. But there's no reason that I should allow these things to spiral into anxiety and low self-esteem and depression I'm not doing that that's just not going to be my life because I understand I just I know I can cope and and I don't I don't search for I, and I never search for happiness too yeah happiness you, you can happiness is never something you can achieve what you can do is you can you cope every day and if you're coping you'll have a general home of happiness but I also I take a lot of stuff from Buddhism and I understand that things like pain rejection, disappointment, grief, tragedy, these are inevitable aspects of the of being a human being. Uh, horrible things are going to happen to me in my life. Someone I love deeply is going to is going to die. I might end up with a terminal illness. Bad things are going to happen and this is a part of the human condition and we must accept this reality. There's no avoiding it. But I know no matter what happens I'll cope with it in the moment. Do you get me? Yeah. If I pretend, you know, if I, if I attach myself to like, I'm going to be as happy as I can, I'm going to avoid situations where a tragedy or misery or rejection could happen. I can't be doing that. I have to go, these things will happen. I've no control over when, when they will happen, but when they do, I'm going to cope with it. And it's going to be painful because another huge thing, and I didn't mention it, actually, yeah, my dad died when I was 21. And that presented a huge crisis for me mm. because that was that that to be honest, like obviously it was very sad. But my father dying when I was twenty one as well. That was like a little, like not a, like it was like a huge mallet into the head that forced me into adulthood. Yeah, do you know? Um, and it was deeply painful. But again, like your parents are gonna die. Someone yeah. you love is gonna die, and. 
there's great meaning in grief. There's great meaning in the pain of grief. It's 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 not pleasant. It's not supposed to be pleasant. It's painful, but there's great meaning in it. You know who I am today, and my values, and all of this. I can attribute a huge amount of that to the fact that my dad died when I was twenty-one. What are you most proud of in terms of your own personal growth? Becoming a happy, confident person. Simple, simple as that. I, 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 I'm, I'm happy and I'm confident, and I just feel, I feel deserving of, uh, of love. That's amazing. You know, and and that's a big one to be able to say. You know, and, I, and I'm not afraid to say it. I, I just feel that like, uh, I, I'm, I'm a good person, and I, I deserve to be loved pretty much and, and more important I deserve to love myself so to be able to say that confidently with my chest and to not feel ashamed or embarrassed about saying it or to not doubt my words uh, I, I, that, that's what I got from all my years of, of self-help is that you know just to know that I have worth as a human and it's no no more worth than anyone else's Something that I believe um, that I'm exploring in, in my next book is that when you're willing to be vulnerable it's sort of a paradox that kind of makes you invulnerable. Would you agree? Absolutely. And one of the key things, so I speak about anxiety a lot on my podcast and the reason I do it is I trained all those years in, in, in psychology and I want to give those really simple jewels to other people because we have a mental health crisis and people don't have access to psychotherapy. But one of the things that I use in order to speak about mental health it's in psychology it's known as appropriate self-disclosure so basically if I'm to speak about anxiety or depression on my podcast or with another person in a pub I lay down my own I, 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 I let loose and unveil I take the armour off and I show them my pain Yeah. I. it's very important that I let someone know there was a point in my life where I thought I was a piece of shit and that I couldn't go into shopping centres without the fear of vomiting and all this stuff that at the time I'd have been terrified of saying out loud I lay my pain and what society would view as failure out in front of me and go here's all my vulnerability and listen to me speak about my vulnerability with no fear and when you do that you get trust with the other person Mm -hmm. and that trust goes okay I I can listen to this person now yeah what would you say to people listening who are maybe at that very vulnerable age that you were 19, 20 when you know it's not as easy as it is for us now to sort of say look we're comfortable with who we are but they don't have the confidence yet to say that they're struggling is there what would be the one thing that you think they could do if they're afraid to talk to their friends Where, where, where should they start? Uh, the first thing you want to do in that situation is is uh, begin journaling your thoughts, okay? A huge thing. So anyone who's suffering from anxiety knows that it's very difficult to focus your thoughts because your head is racing all the time. And what, what the, the first beginning thing that I say to people is... Firstly, pick up a book about cognitive behavioural therapy if you can. If you can't afford it, go online. You'll find one on, as a PDF. My, my Bible, and I'm not advertising anything, but this has been my Bible since I was 18. Cognitive behavioural therapy for dummies mm-hmm. is one of the... It, it's, it's just amazing. It's an incredible book. It's the best one out there. It really is. I've about five copies of it. I give it to people. I, re- I read this weekly, and I've been doing so for many years. Um, there's a thing in it called the, the ABC model of uh, journaling your thoughts, basically. Whereas, so, it's like, if you have an anxious thought or an anxiety attack, you write down what the thought was, you, as honestly as possible, then describe every single one of the negative feelings that you had, all the fears in your head. 
you, you get it down onto the page in front of you and then you ask yourself if if these things are really going to happen and you write it all down. But if you're someone who's scared to speak to another person because your brain won't allow you to have the language or even hearing yourself say it out loud is frightening, write it down. And once you have it written down, all that honesty on a piece of paper and it's in front of you, it be- somehow becomes manageable. It's it. Think of it this way. If you're, if you're lucky enough to have your friend speak to you about their anxiety, like the things that they're saying to you can, a- can actually seem hilarious and funny and ridiculous. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with bringing humour to it. Like, let's be honest, Caroline, the idea of, like me and you, I, I ca- why can't you go to Dunn's in case I puke up and everyone looks? <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's yeah. fuck- it, it is ridiculous and it's funny and it's okay to laugh at it, right? And when your friend says that to you, you go, fucking hell, that's ridiculous. But when you write down your own fear on a piece of paper, you can look at it as if your friend is saying to you and you go, fucking hell, really? I'm scared to go to Dunn's in case I puke. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah, so a bit of compassion. That's a bit, yeah, self-compassion. And, and humour as well. I, I, a huge thing I, I do, and I get criticised for it, is I, I, I openly bring humour into mental health spaces. I will speak about suicide with humour. And the reason I do it is that we ha- we're under this misconception in society that... In order to be serious about something, you must be solemn. Mm. Solemnity is fucking useless. Solemnity is one of these really useless things that we do. Solemnity is, it's the performative condition of being serious. It's not being serious. It's letting other people um, think you're being serious. Classic example, going to a funeral of a close friend and and they're up at the front row of the funeral and they're their ma has just died or their brother has just died and you know this person deeply and you're expected to fucking shake their hand and say sorry for your troubles. Yeah. That right there is solemnity. It's a ritual of perceived seriousness that actually gets in the way of true expression and understanding of emotions and the mental health space is is wrought with this. This person is speaking about depression. This person is speaking about suicide. We must all be very quiet and serious and listen to them and I'm like no, fuck it. It's okay. Humor is part of the human condition. We have to use humor as a way to understand ourselves. Humor exists to cut tension. Yeah, it takes the horns off it for me. Yeah, yeah. completely. So I don't mind using humor. I, I mean, as long as the other person, as long as you're not laughing at the other person. Yeah. But it's okay for me to go, yeah, it's fucking hilarious that I, 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 I thought I was going to puke up in dungs. That's actually <laughs> quite funny. Because it is. Yeah. It's, 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 and... What I love about it, and you see it in the work of like the likes of Samuel Beckett and things like that, artists who use absurdity in their work, the human condition is absurd. Life is absurd, so it's okay to explore absurdity. That's why my book is so mad, it's so irrational, because the human condition is irrational, and we keep trying to make it look rational for the benefit of other people, whereas I, I, I'm comfortable in the madness. Yeah. I'm comfortable in the irrational madness, and I'm comfortable finding hilarity within it when I can. Well, the world needs more of that, I think. Um, yeah. Can I ask what's next in store for Blind Boy? What am I going to do? Uh, I'm doing a world tour with the podcast. I'm off in wow. uh, Australia, the UK, and doing gigs in Thailand. Wow. In Barcelona, Madrid, all around the gaff, America, the whole shebang. So I'm going to be touring for the next while. I'm going to stick with my podcast. I've just finished BBC series in the book. So I kind of want to chill out with projects at the moment and just focus on the podcast and I just kind of, I'm going to let things come to me. Yeah, like is the podcast your your happy place? Yeah, I yeah. think so. And and 
like I, I'm very very happy with the book but to be honest I, I bit off a lot more than I could chew last year yeah and that's I not mean, good I, for anxiety either you know no, you have to know when no, to say it's, no it's, it's, it's not and, and so I was writing a TV series writing a book and doing a weekly podcast and touring and the thing for me is uh, creativity is a huge part of my happiness I'm a creative individual and I need to be making work that I truly love and enjoy and that process is a very therapeutic and compassionate and fun process and that last that book that I wrote there 20% of writing that book I was writing it in a situation of stress because I had too much on I don't want to do that to myself again I want to write a book from a position of compassion and love and fun well it doesn't come across I mean it's absolutely brilliant and I would recommend thank it you very as much. an ultimate Christmas gift for anyone Blind Boy thank you so much for giving me your time I really appreciate it and I've just loved everything you said particularly about getting to the point of feeling worthy of love I just think that's like the ultimate goal for everyone listening so I'm sure everyone will get something from what, what you've said and continue with all your success and best of luck to you thanks very much Caroline and thanks so much for having me on listen to me Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access a full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.